Hi guys, it's Annie McDonald, physio and strength and conditioning coach, and welcome to the Informed Performance Podcast. On today's show, I have the pleasure of speaking to JB Morin. JB is currently a professor and the head of sports science and physical education at the University of Saint Etienne in France. Outside of academia, JB is a highly sought after and experienced consultant and track and field coach who also supports the efforts of athletes and teams in professional sports. JB's field of interest and expertise is mainly around biomechanics and performance, with an interest in running and jumping biomechanics. In this episode with JB, we will be discussing GPS usage, resisted sprinting, and profiling athletes. This episode has been sponsored by Vol Performance, makers of Forstex, the world's fastest, easiest, and most powerful dual force plate system. Forstex can help you to analyse neuromuscular strength, performance, and imbalances in your athletes. With an incredibly simple setup and intuitive software, Forstex automatically detects over 15 common force plate tests and analyzes them with a single click, helping you to collect quick and accurate insights on your athletes. To learn more, head over to our sponsor, VolPerformance.com. You're listening to the Informed Performance Podcast with me, Andy McDonald, and here is today's episode with JB Morin. JB, firstly, thanks for coming on the show, mate. Uh, just to kick us off, we've got a fairly mixed uh, listener base in terms of the professions that they belong to in sport. So there may be some people tuning in where this could be their first encounter of you. Would you be able to just kind of, uh, I guess, introduce yourself and, and tell us a little bit about your background? Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks for having me first. Uh, real pleasure to to speak here. Um, I'm, a, I'm a currently a full professor of uh, sports biomechanics and uh, performance at the University of Saint-Étienne in France. Um, my background is a PhD in uh, locomotion biomechanics back in 2004. Uh, I have also a coaching and, and track and field uh, background as an athlete. And um, I'm also um, coaching and consulting for some uh, elite uh, sports where uh, sprinting is involved. So track and field, basketball, uh, football, soccer, and so on. So that's my uh, my activity. Cool. And, you know, I know you've done a lot of academic research um, and, you know, without making you list every individual paper, would you be able to give us some kind of context as to, you know, the main areas that you're interested in, broadly speaking? Yeah, sure. So my main area of interest is uh, overall locomotion biomechanics at first, uh, then running biomechanics, running performance, and uh, especially sprint running, biomechanics and performance. And the recent years have been um, towards first um, connecting that to hamstring injuries, because definitely running mechanics has to do with hamstring injuries, and also connecting that to field performance uh, methods. So over the years, I think the first one was published in 2004, we've always tried to provide um, people who are not able to have and use laboratory devices some simple methods to calculate and compute some very key variables. So we call that field methods. So thanks to the use of field methods, we can we can also apply our more uh, laboratory-based research. Cool. And I, I know before we got on the, um, the call, you were mentioning um, you know, three big areas of GPS, GPS resisted sprints. Uh, would you, would you be able to kind of talk through, you know, what, I guess with GPS first, what you've been mostly looking at recently? 
Yeah, so we, we've we've looked at with the with the improvement in GPS signal and data quality, um, we've looked at how to use GPS units not only to assess, I would say, volume, uh, you know, running distance, running times, etc., uh, etc., et but very high speed and very high power events, so accelerations. And so we wanted to see how GPS can be a speed measurement tool during maximum speed trials. So single linear sprints, um, and we call that in-situ speed profiling during uh, team sports, that is the, the accelerations and speed events. So trying to profile the players based on only the use of GPS units, because I think it's simpler uh, and some recent models are accurate enough to do that instead of using different technologies such as a radar, a laser, or uh, I don't know, timing gates that might be a bit more expensive and a bit less practical to use. So this is what we are now investigating. And I mean, I don't know whether you can comment on this at this stage, but how, you know, how accurate are you finding GPS um, for detecting high speeds? Yeah, so so I think it's been it's been almost five to ten years that the most accurate GPS are okay to to measure very well speed plateau, which is very high speed but uh, constant speed. The question was, and, and the accuracy was much lower on acceleration events when the speed changes very rapidly. But the the very last models we've used and tested compare correctly to uh, linear encoders and to laser or radar devices. Um, they don't match perfectly due to differences in, in you know, data processing and data analysis between the different systems, but they um, show the very same inter-trial differences. So it means if you want to do some intra-athlete comparisons, or some group comparisons, and you use always the same device, GPS, then for maximum acceleration to maximum speed. Um, the last units we've used are from uh, Catapult and GPXA. Uh, they are really okay. Or, of course, as always, if the, if the measurement conditions are okay. And, um, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but there must be some kind of, um, you know, in-field sporting advantages as well to GPS. You know, if you were looking at, say, I don't know, like a high jumper or maybe a baseball player, it must be easier to get a more accurate sort of and specific speed profile for them in their environment than maybe you could set up with with gates. Yeah, absolutely. This is why to me it's very interesting because, of course, so the big advantage of, of GPS is that and the big disadvantage is that you have to be outdoors in a very open field and blah, blah, blah. So in some stadiums, uh, you won't have a good signal. But if you have a good signal, then you can measure practically anything in any sport. And, and some of our current research is assessing track and field people with in-race, uh, even at elite, world elite events, in-race measurements, for example, during the 100 meter, the 110 meters uh, hurdles or warm-up uh, pacing and strategies. So it's definitely bringing much more information about the movement and, uh, and the performance, yes, for sure. It, it was limited to a few team sports in the past, but now it's really, anytime uh, there's open field and open sky uh, measurements possible, it's really interesting. To give you um, an anecdote, I, I very often work with athletes myself uh, for coaching or, or you know assessment sessions. Now I only go with my GPS unit when, when, the, 
when I do some speed measurements of whatever type of athlete, including including cyclists or or BMX BMX riders, when we do some speed tests, yeah. I mean, there's no doubt the GPS is a, a quicker setup than setting up series of uh, uh, speed gates along a track or, you know, whatever the environment is. So yeah. I'm sure it's sure. much easier. And, and a good GPS is 20, 20 uh, pieces of information per second, more or less, whereas timing gates are just, you know, if you do a 50-meter acceleration, timing gates, if you have six timing gates, it means you're super rich and it's going to give you six individual information. Not more. A GPS unit is twenty a second, so that's there's no, you know, it's not not comparable. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, and what were you looking at with resisted resisted sprints specifically? What's the work you're doing there? So the, the work we're doing now is um, is to dig deeper into um, the programming and the most efficient way to program uh, heavy resistance uh, training because. Our work and and some of colleagues have shown over the last 10 years that uh, heavy resistance was a very interesting way to improve acceleration kinetics and acceleration uh, outputs. But we've always used some very classical standard uh, research type of programming, which was 8 to 10 weeks, uh, constant or slightly increasing load, and a very, very repetitive loading scheme. And we've discovered in some research that um, having a taper period at the end of this kind of overload is very interesting in terms of performance. Um, and that individually, different athletes respond differently to uh, heavy sleds and to high resistance training. So we want to now, now that I think it's, it's clear, it's a good training method if we want to improve early acceleration. This is clear, several groups showing it. But we want to dig deeper into the what's the best type of programming because we've discussed with some elite coaches who use it. Uh, they have a very different approach of programming it with their players. We've discussed with team sport players, uh, coaches, who program it differently in season, off season, uh, close to the game or not. And we want to really dig deeper into that. It's going to be difficult to, you know, experimentally test. But uh, that's that's the the research we are doing now. I don't know whether it's too early to to say this or not. But is there is there any kind of indicators for you as to when or you know which types of athletes or what styles of sprint technique or you know um, depending on what their program looks like? Is there any kind of indicators for you for who would benefit most from sprint training? With a so uh, so so basically everybody can benefit from this type of training. It, it's, it's like asking who would benefit from SNC uh, and, and, and gym type of training. Everybody can. The only thing is um, who would benefit from what type of load emphasis. And uh, here we have some, some responses already published. It means that the more, uh, um, you know, the lower your maximum force and acceleration capability, the more you would benefit from heavy loads as a priority. And it's important to say as a priority because there is a shortcut where when you say these athletes would benefit from high loads, some people interpret that as uh, do that and only that and do nothing else. No, it's coaches are not stupid. They know it's a, you know, it's a puzzle and you need some more high loads in this puzzle for these guys and maybe some more lighter loads for guys with uh, good acceleration but low maximum speed uh, uh, profiling. 
And so that's exactly the point where we are now. We, we clearly showed in three different studies that the individual response to the same training program was different, which you might expect, of course, but it was related clearly to the initial profile of the players. So it means not everybody benefits from high resistance, but some do. Not everybody benefits from low resistance, but some do. And to me, the magic of good coaching is to identify who needs what. And the magic of good science is to clearly show the standard responses to what type of training load. And the people who are able to mix these two magics uh, would be very good. And then for those who haven't used um, sleds before, are you typically going as a, off a percentage of body weight to calculate the loading? Yeah, so I think it's a good way to start. There is one clear thing is that it should be considered as gym work. You would never give some squats or some press or some deadlift heavy to some heavy and often to some people who never did. It doesn't make sense. So it's exactly the same with sleds. You should go very progressively. You should, you know, bring them to that type of exercise culture. And then um, you should, you should um, program that first as a percent of body weight. It's, it's logical, but the best way to program it is a percent of velocity, running velocity decrease. Because if you give to you and me the same percent of our own body weight, we will very likely not run at the same speed because we have different capabilities. So if you want us to have the very same, you know, stimulus, we should not have the same percent of body mass. Of course, we should not have the same percent of load, uh, the same absolute load. That's, that's obvious. But even the same percent of body mass can be, can be, you know, tricky. So we have, you should have the same velocity decrement. This is exactly what happens at the gym. When you have two athletes and you want them to work the same thing, you don't give them the same percent of body mass. You give them the same load that will induce the same speed of the bar. This is velocity-based training uh, uh, philosophy. And, and, you know, while we're kind of comparing, you know, I guess the gym to um, sprints, for, for an example, you know, in the gym, obviously, we can use velocity-based training to mm-hmm. set cutoffs for when you're going to, you know, stop the work on a certain lift mm-hmm. for an athlete. What are the sort of, like, non-negotiables, non-negotiables or how would you, like, lay out when you stop an athlete doing sprints depending on, I don't know, maybe form failure or um, speed yeah, failure? Yeah. So that's interesting because in the gym, when you have this threshold, it's based on the measurement, correct? It's based on the, on the bar speed measurement. So in the field, you should have the same thing, a measurement of speed that tells you when does speed significantly goes below your threshold. So the, the, the gym devices that you can use are encoders or accelerometers on the bar. The speed devices on the track could be a radar gun, could be a GPS. This is where GPS are very interesting. If you have a GPS unit and you do this kind of session and you have some live feedback, you can know. You can also use some timing gates. Like you do uh, some sprints on 20 meters. You, you track the 15 to 20 meter time. And you see that when this decreases, you know there's something that is uh, close to failure. This is the, this is the idea. And I know there's not always, um, you know, perfect black and white percentages where you see a certain percentage decrease in speed and then you cut the athlete off. But is there any kind of, um, is there any common approaches to like what percentages you you could consider for the cutoffs? I know that's a horribly absolute. Yeah. 
Yeah, so it it really depends because if you want to work on fatigue, then there is no there is no cutoff. You just go until you know real failure. But if you want to work on quality, my my inch here would be to say, uh, look, ten percent decrease in top speed. There is clearly something going on. So if you want to maintain good quality work, I think you should stay within the ninety percent of top speed. This is the this is my my experience and observation. When top speed decreases by more than ten percent, it really means something is something is happening. Yeah, that makes complete sense. Okay, so that's GPS and resisted sprints. The the third area you mentioned earlier was um, you know running posture. So would you be able to elaborate on what specifically you've been looking at there as well? Yeah. So so as a coach myself and as a as an athlete and as a you know very regular observer of people running. Um, I think, and this is not an opinion, this is anatomy, um, the way you run, the way you move your segments, the way you place your trunk, hips, legs during running influences the tension in your posterior chain and particularly in the hamstrings. So it means that by modifying your posture, you can modify the tension in the hamstrings. This is clear. There's some simulation studies, um, and it's anatomy. When you move your limbs, you stretch the muscles. One way or the other, it means you can reduce the tension in the hamstrings by running in a certain way, but you can also increase the tension in the hamstrings by running in a certain way. And this is all things equal, uh, uh, to my opinion, related to the risk of injuries because. If you do the same movement, that's a very high speed movement with a different length and a different tension in the hamstrings, mechanically speaking, you have a different risk of strain injury because injury is a mismatch between the capacity of the muscle to face the, me the mechanical strain and the strain that is, you know, uh, into the muscle. So if you want to prevent injuries, you have two ways uh, two buttons to push. One is to try and reduce the strain. One is to try and improve capacity. But if you over-focus on improving capacity by, you know, strengthening the muscle at long lengths and so on, but you don't focus on reducing the strain, maybe the balance will always be negative. And so research in the last 30 years have been over, you know, uh, uh, addressing improving capacity but reducing strain uh, has been, to my opinion, uh, almost omitted. And I think this is a key in, uh, well, at least it's an unexplored. So we should give a chance to this uh, logical approach. Yeah. And I guess one of the things I wanted to talk to you about as well today was when you're assessing or profiling a, a sprinter or runner, um, how... how granular do you go? Because obviously we can look at running speeds, we can scale things back and look at, force outputs jump in and look yeah. at metrics like RSI yeah. and ESI, you know, and then you can even go down to like individual joint talks. How, how granular yeah. do you go yourself? Yeah. yeah. So th this is exactly what we do. We, we, we profile the kinetics uh, by measuring or estimating the forces that are produced. I mean, the external force output, and then we go to the kinematics. That is the segment movements. And of course, almost nobody can assess correctly uh, the 3d kinematics of uh, fast running people. So we have some field approaches that are simple enough to provide good information. 
and complex enough to you know go deep into into the position. So we measure in the sagittal plane of running the main 2D kinematics with high-speed cameras, and we focus on trunk angle, hip angle, thigh positions, and foot positions. And uh, there's three main um, things that influence the, the hamstring strain. Trunk, trunk angle, the more forward-oriented your trunk, the higher the tension in the hamstrings, all things equal. Pelvic tilt, the more the, the pelvis is tilted forward, the higher the tension. And the movement of the thighs, because the position of the thigh at the moment of touchdown is related to the tension uh, in the hamstring. So we, we really focus on that. So I would say it's a mix between super complex, very difficult, nobody does it, 3D motion capture at the lab, and uh, very, you know, over simple, just looking at someone and say, okay, he has a kick butt and uh, it doesn't run well. So we are trying to find an in-between that is, uh, you know, valid and uh, doable. If, and if that's the ki uh, the kinematics, how far down the rabbit hole do you go for looking at kinetics as well? So kinetics, kinetics, it's exactly the same story. If you want to really have the kinetics, you need force plates onto the track. And this, you can only have access to that in a few labs in the world and for a few steps only. So we have a, um, a method to estimate the force output in the, in the you know, vertical and forward direction that's been validated against force plates. And that really only needs the speed uh, data. So again, if I have a GPS or a good speed measurement device and I know the speed data during the acceleration, I can recalculate the kinetic, the main kinetics, the force output, but I cannot have the impulse for every step, and I cannot have, uh, you know, uh, other. I would say a bit more complex, like breaking impulse versus pushing impulse. Uh, this I cannot have. So it's always the same story. I can have some pretty good amount of information, but I can have it compared to you know laboratory setting that. I can have much more information, but there's almost no chance I can take my athletes there. I do myself at my lab. I'm very lucky because I have all of that. So for some elite athletes, we do such measurements. But to be honest, uh, we only do it a few times a season because they are not available. So this is why I use much more often my field simplified methods than my laboratory, you know, rocket science devices. Yeah. And, you know, academically speaking, when we're looking at, say, muscle contributions and uh, kinetics and kinematics of sprinting, what, you know, tools or academic topics uh, give us, uh, I guess, assumptions versus give us trustworthy insights? Um, and I, I guess really what I want to know is, is there any um, misconceptions that we rely upon? No, it's everything is super limited. There is no gold standard. Because right now we cannot measure directly the force in a muscle during during movement, so we only use indirect approaches. One is surface EMG, but it has clear limitations. Uh, one is uh, ultrasound, but it has clear limitations. Typically, we measure a very very tiny part of the muscle at rest, and we try to extrapolate that to the behavior of the muscle during movement. That is, you know, crazy extrapolation. Um, same for surface EMG and same for modeling, where you film 
the external you know shape of the body and you try to infer the internal movement of the muscles it is very very extrapolating so and this is why sometimes in in the literature or in in social media this uh you know this battle against uh, between people that your method is flawed no it's yours no it's yours uh, emg is better than this or ultrasound is better than that i think it's overall very stupid because all these methods are you know uh, <laughs> very very biased methods so uh it's very indirect right now yeah uh, and I, I use I, I I use almost all of them in my own studies, okay. So I, I totally you know acknowledge and embrace these kind of limitations. But my philosophy is to say, uh, what's best, uh, doing nothing and 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 stay there, or trying to push some new things using very limited approaches. But you know, uh, knowing the limitations, some of these approaches bring some informations. Anyway. Yeah, I mean, limitations or no limitations, you've you've got to use something to push the conversation yeah, yeah, forwards. Yeah. You yeah. just but but you just have to be very aware of the limitations and also very aware of the limitations of uh, other people's uh, approaches. Yeah, um, I guess from a I guess from a practical standpoint, you know, we've spoken about posture, GPS, sprint programming. We've spoken about tons of different things. How do you kind of, you know, an athlete's in front of you, how do you, how do you organize your thoughts? How do you, um, you know, get this stuff down on paper or how do you form a, a way of communicating this information and, and I guess collecting it as a snapshot of that athlete in that moment as you see them? Because there's lots of different variables that we're talking about here. Yeah, that was very interesting. So I tend to first not measure anything. I tend just to let the, let the athlete move and I watch very, very carefully the warm up uh the performance some sprints then i try to measure uh the running speed to calculate everything and then to film in slow motion the early acceleration and late acceleration and i usually end up with um, a picture that is something like six to ten main variables and then we can discuss things and uh and uh but i always i always use the variables as the very last uh piece of argument uh, to you know to explain to an athlete their margin of improvement their limitations because i start with the way they move and i start with uh discussing with them so there is no data there is just discussion uh what do you feel when you do that uh how can you explain the way you do that to have their own perception of what they do and then i bring the the i bring the the data to further discuss because the data will help me orient the type of training and the data will help me check if my work my intervention has been helpful and in, in changing what we wanted to change it's it's um it's really refreshing to hear that someone with your um especially i guess your technical and academic ability using uh data and tools to create data it's really refreshing to hear that you i guess and, and correct me if i'm wrong go big to small and you look at you know the athlete with your eyes yeah, and look yeah. at them qualitatively and from a coaching eye first before you go you know sports science and metrics yeah because i don't want yeah i don't want to i don't want to work on data i want to work on movement so this is very very important yeah and i've heard you speak previously and discuss the the evolution of sort of technology and hardware and you've mentioned labs earlier today um 
for ways that have enabled us to sort of understand force velocity outputs of running and speeds. Um, we've touched upon GPS. Is there any other sort of, I'm just thinking with the sort of practical coach in mind, is there any other modest options that you commonly use or would sort of turn people to when they don't have, you know, force plates and other more expensive mm. tools? So, so to be honest, today you can work, I think, very, very efficiently with a budget of $2,000 per season. $1,000 per season will be with one GPS unit. Uh, I, I mean, if you work with individual athletes, of course. And uh, the other $1,000 will be on a very good, you know, uh, iPad uh, uh, camera. I say iPad because it's a very practical 240 frames per second uh, devices. And with this, you can already do a lot of technical stuff, a lot of, you know, uh, force velocity profiling. You can basically do almost everything we've published in the last uh, 10, 15 years uh, and have it in your toolbox. Plus, we've published some free Excel spreadsheets that can help you process everything uh, for free. So you cannot do um, a lot if you don't have this budget. Uh, but I would say it's a pretty minimal budget. If you think about it, plus the iPad, when you have it, you have it for 10 years if you if you take care of it. And, and you know, so it's very cool because when I started my master's degree, it was in 2000, so more than 20 years ago. Uh, with $2,000, you couldn't do all that for sure so you you had only just you know timing systems and or manual timing but manual timing of somebody doesn't tell you a lot and uh, so that's definitely a cool time to 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 assess people and you know we've you've discussed kind of lots of the different um you know the research and academic areas you're working within how do you kind of spend your time non-academically coaching and you know are you consulting are you moving around much uh, within different teams and athletic groups yeah that's exactly it so typically i have about one one day per week or one day every two weeks where i am either with uh, uh, athletes individually uh, coaching consulting or coaches uh, uh, because I like to teach coaches how to, you know, then do things themselves uh, instead of myself going to coach and so on. So I would say that's uh, that's about ten percent of my of my time, fifteen percent of my time. Very cool, JB. Just before we close down this conversation, is there, you know, is there any closing thoughts that you want to share that we haven't been able to squeeze into today's conversation? Mm. No, I think if 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 I if the audience is mostly uh, coaches or people, you know, uh, performance practitioners, I guess the most important point is that uh, they don't take every academic research piece of research published as a, as a golden rule, and they 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 keep their own, you know, uh, eyes to to assess the the quality of research because the key thing is that not everything that's published. Uh, is gold um, and so you have to keep this as an additional piece of information not as uh, as the rule uh, definitely I, f- I think sometimes it's easy to kind of uh, almost read research papers and collect convenient facts you know um, stats or, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, or yeah. references that back up your own biases and I've probably done that myself on a number yeah. of occasions but it, you know it's always tempting yeah I, I told that once. It's a very funny anecdote to the to the manager of the French rugby team because after a PhD defense, he came to me and said, "Oh, uh, you've discussed the quality of research, and uh, 
I didn't know that there were some published poor quality studies and good quality studies. I thought everything that was published was great. And I told him it's exactly like a rugby game. Not all victories were good rugby. And so he, and he said, okay, I understand what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> and where's the best place for listeners to find you? I know you're active on social media. So, um, you know, what are your handles? And have you got, also, have you got anything else that people should uh, look out for in, in your pipeline of work? Yeah, so for sure, what I've, what we publish and what I think important to, to notice from other people is uh, through Twitter, at uh, JB underscore Maureen. And uh, I have a personal website, jbmorin.net, where I put all the things we produce, the, the, the spreadsheets, the conferences, the podcasts, and so on. So anytime you want to reconnect to my work or contact me, you go to my website. Cool. Perfect. Well, JB, I've really enjoyed the conversation today and I uh, thank you greatly for coming on. Um, appreciate your time. Me too. Thanks. Thanks a lot.